we really run the largest global scientific inquiry into states of really not states, but traits. So persistent forms of what people often think of as higher levels of consciousness. So things like enlightenment, non-duality, persistent mystical experience, transcendental consciousness for the TMers out there, cosmic consciousness, God consciousness, Brahman consciousness. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and your health. And before we jump into today's show, I wanted to remind you that our show is sponsored by the Meditation for Life mini course, which you can find over on our website at aboutmeditation.com. In five easy lessons, you can learn the basics of meditation and start your practice today. That's the Meditation for Life mini course over at aboutmeditation.com. And now, I'm delighted to share with you my show with Dr. Jeffrey Martin. So this is a really interesting show, y'all. Jeffrey Martin has done some really, I mean, it's groundbreaking and remarkable work. And uh, he is a founder in the transformative technology space. He's a serial entrepreneur and a social scientist, and he researches personal transformation. And what he calls really the states of greatest human well-being. And he spent the last 10 years conducting the largest international study on, get ready for it, persistent non-symbolic experiences. So what that means, he's talking about types of consciousness commonly known as what we usually talk about on the show, enlightenment, non-duality, the peace that passeth understanding, unitive experience, and, and hundreds of others. More recently, he has used this research to make systems available to help people obtain profound psychological benefits in a rapid, secular, reliable, and safe way. So I want you to listen closely to this show because Jeffrey Martin's tone doesn't necessarily betray the depth and significance of what he's accomplished. And... I might say what he's actually talking about, the substance of what he's talking about. It's a really, really significant accomplishment, what he's done. So I want you to take some time and check out his work over at the Finder's Course. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Jeffrey A. Martin. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Wonderful. And so one of our co-founders, Tom Bershad, took the Finders course, which is... Oh, really? Yeah, he, and, and he's a big fan. When he learned that we were going to be doing this interview, he, was, he gave a very strong endorsement. And Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, has found it very positive in his own practice. He's a, he's a lifelong meditator. He started, he's, 
I think he's 60 now, but he started doing TM when he was about 17 or oh, wow. 15. Yeah. I mean, he's been doing, and he's now deeply kind of engaged in Sufi meditation practices. But oh, wow. That's really quite a departure. Yes, totally. From transcending to love. Yeah, right? He and and you know he loves it and he swears by it and um. But he now I think so he went through your finders course and now ha and stays together with the kind of group that he he went through it with. That is so common. These groups, even the very first group from the pilot course five years ago, still meet together. Amazing. Well, people just bond. You know, you go through this incredible transformation with people. And there's a bond that forms, I imagine, sort of like warriors that go through stuff mm. and, you know, other people that go through extreme situations or this is on the positive side, obviously, but yes. still, it's, it is amazing how these groups are so sticky. Wow. That's very cool. All right. Well, so everyone listening, we're going to back up and um, so you understand the context that we're speaking about this in. We're going to start first, I think, Jeffrey, if you could just introduce yourself for folks who don't know you yet, um, can you just, before we talk a little bit about your own story, can you just give everyone the elevator pitch about who you are and what you do? And then we'll, and then we'll go a little bit more into your personal story. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there are really two sides to my life. One side is what we'll be mostly talking about today, I assume, though maybe the other side will sneak in. Yeah. And that is really sort of this large research project that I've done on more of the scholarly academic side of my life. Um, we really run the largest global scientific inquiry into states of really not states, but traits. So persistent forms of what people often think of as higher levels of consciousness. So things like enlightenment, non-duality, persistent mystical experience, transcendental consciousness for the TMers out there, cosmic consciousness, God consciousness, Brahman consciousness, all of their levels. Um, going to your friend and co-founder yes. on his background. Um, and it really... No one has really done a project of our scale before. So we did it in a couple of phases. Uh, the first phase was looking at like over a thousand people. I was looking at like 1,200 people. Hmm. And really that had reported being in one of these places all around the world uh, and diving into them with qualitative and quantitative research. So quantitative research is things like physiology. So it could be a brain scan or EEG reading or heart hmm. rate or breath or, you know, stuff like that. Um, and the flip side is qualitative, which is really trying to understand their subjective experience of the world and how life unfolds for them on a moment to moment basis internally. So that's one side of my life. <clears throat> and then the other side of my life, pardon me, I had a little bit of a cold today. Um, then the other side of my life is uh, the transformative technology movement, which really came out of this, because at a certain point, we really asked ourselves, can these things be engineered? And so uh, I wanted to try to put together people uh, who were, you know, engineers and hackers and whatnot, and try to see if we could create devices or use existing technology to try to actually get people into these places. Mm -hmm. Now, that movement has become vast since right. then. 
And now it's largely about um, well-being in general and technology. It's sort of become the epicenter of technology and well-being around the world. It's in, you know, 70 countries and hundreds of cities. And uh, it's kind of this massive movement. There's a big conference that happens every year here in Silicon Valley involving it and whatnot. Um, But at its heart, really still for me is, you know, engineering what we call fundamental well-being publicly as sort of our catch-all phrase for Mm. these types of things. Or academically, we use the words uh, persistent non-symbolic experience. So engineering those types of things still lies at the heart of that. Hmm. Excellent. All right. Well, so, yeah, I think we will probably get a little bit into both and and definitely the former and maybe a little bit the latter. Cool. Um, Because I think that's going to be of interest to everyone. But first, yeah, I think obviously it's like, well... How did you get in to this kind of work? I mean, per- personally, what what's your storyline? Ha- ha- what what set you on a path where you became interested in not only and and you must have a background in sort of seeking and personally looking for answers. How, how did number one? Te- please tell us a little bit about that journey. And then how that led, what significant experiences for you led to then this, what must have been obviously an iterative process towards this grand study and then and then the finder's course. Take, take us a little bit on that journey. Absolutely. So my seeking was really much earlier in my life. And um, I would say when I was around 15 or 16, um, I was in a Christian family, a very conservative Christian family. My Mm. mom, in fact, was a Christian TV show host. No, Uh, that's awesome. My dad was a corporate executive. He was a finance guy. Um, But my mom was... uh, was deeply her whole side of her family it's like theologians and you know ministers and people who ran bible schools and like graduate programs and christian education and mm, stuff like that mm. amazing people great people but you know um heavily christian right yes and so um i was an unsuccessful conversion case right. as the academy would say in terms of you know every time i asked jesus to come into my heart it didn't seem like he really wanted anything to do with me mm-hmm. uh, so i never really had any experiences that were spiritual or religious or anything like that and um eventually my my parents started talking about getting divorced um they wound up holding together until i was out of high school which was very nice of them um So I grew up with a family intact or whatever, Hmm. but just the whisper that my mom might be getting divorced really caused her show to be pulled from the air almost immediately worldwide. Wow. Uh, I was invited not to go back to my Christian high school. Um, It was really like this harsh rejection. And for me, it it was a wake-up call, and it really made me look at whether or not what this religion professed seemed to be evident in the people who were a part of it. You know, so it professes that, you know, it produces love and, you know, brotherhood towards your fellow humans and and all of that. <clears throat> and yet we were in the absolute belly of it um, and seemed to experience the exact opposite of it. And that really ripped my belief system out from underneath me and sent me on a period of, I would say, at least a decade of really looking through every major and minor religion and spiritual system, even things like ritual magic and stuff like that that were right. quite far. Uh, 
um, every philosophical system and philosophy that you could imagine. I mean, I just sort of worked my way through all of it. And I used that same touchstone for every inquiry, which was, you know, every one of these systems basically says, this is who you should be if you practice it. And so I would sort of look and say, on average, is that who these people seem to be? Generally speaking, um, it didn't ever seem to be the case. I didn't really find any system or philosophy or anything that really made me think, okay, this is doing what it says it's, it does. And so um, that really kind of ended my seeking in some sense. And what I was left with was a belief that what was probably important, most important, was your day-to-day, moment-to-moment well-being. And so I then began to look into and investigate and um, spend my time on practices and methods and theories and whatnot that really would just sort of increase your well-being from day to day, moment to moment, and so on. And that became, in a way, my philosophy of life for decades until this inquiry came along. And so this inquiry... Well, one, uh, I have one question before we get into yeah. this, this inquiry, yeah. which is, you, you know, I just want to pause and go back. Like, because you described when this, when you were seventeen, or when you, you, uh, when they eventually got divorced, and and just the implications of that, how it ripped up the fabric of your your belief system, or and yeah. yanked the carpet out from under you. You then described this sort before of before that, even really, when they were just rumored to get divorced. Got it, and and yeah, so even more extreme, and but you described then this sort of ten year odyssey of really kind of investigating all these different paths yourself that yeah i mean for a young person that sounds like an extraordinary level of intention <laughs> uh because i just didn't want to gloss over that because yeah. that's significant for a young person to be that one pointed and focused and to kind of have that sort of perspicacity to say, hey, this is so important. I'm going to devote myself to an investigation of, you know, you're basically verifying, like, how, do these paths have integrity in terms of what people are saying and doing? And, I mean, can you just shed a little bit of light on the genesis for that? No, and No pun intended, but, you know, what, <laughs> what I mean, that's extraordinary, kind of That's focus. That's a good point. I, you know, I've never really thought about that in relation to what other people might have done in a similar circumstance. Yeah. I think for me, it was, I felt like there must be a truth or an answer out there somewhere. Mm. And that was probably related to my Christian roots, you know, where I was so strongly indoctrinated that there was this truth. Mm. Uh, but I'll bet you that my psychology was just such that it still had this ingrained pattern of believing that there must be a truth out there. Right. And it's just a question of whether or not it can be found. Mm. And then just choosing to use that benchmark of are people, do people appear to be who they should be? Yeah. If the system does what it says they should do. But yeah, that's a good point. I haven't really thought about that before. Mm. I just assumed that other people would be like that, but maybe that's weird. Maybe that's definitely not the case. Uh, yeah, I mean, every, yeah, I guess every, I, I just jumped into an, a system wholesale myself. I, I, had, I was with a guru for about 13 years and lived in his ashram. Oh. And oh, wow. I, I, like, I found one and I had my, you know, 
he was a vehicle for one of these non, you know, one of these sort of extreme experiences in that I was sold and wow. you know, that, that was enough, but eventually it collapsed for some of the reasons you said. And who was it? Just out of curiosity. His name's Andrew Cohen. Oh, and yeah, sure. Yeah. He, so he was my teacher. I was with oh, yeah, him from yeah. like 1999 to 2013. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. It's wow. a long yeah. time. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, so what you said, jump, I mean, I, I obviously had, and I started young, you know, I was 22 or so when I joined his ashram and, and lived there. And, wow. um, but like you, you know, I had a lot of focus, but you, you know, I appreciated the, the kind of the scope of the inquiry you described. It just seemed to me that that, and I, I, your explanation really makes a lot of sense to me. And then how it sounds like then a lot evolved in how you were looking at it and, and it brought you to this point where you're like, I'm going to focus on wellness and these different techniques and practices. Yeah. And that worked really well for me for years. And you know, if you fast forward to around uh, 2005 or so, hmm. this really all started in 2006 officially. Um, but by 2005, um, that had worked for me pretty well. I was, I had had a, you know, successful life by what other people would measure a life by, you know? Yeah. Um, and despite that, I didn't feel, I felt like there were quite a few people out there that were more happy than I was. Mm. I wasn't miserable. I still had certainly that existential, those existential questions that I'd had my whole life. Mm. Um, but you know, I wasn't, depressed or um, anything like that. It just seemed to me that if there are other people that were happier than I was, probably I could be happier. Hmm. And if I just kept doing the same thing, if I just kept running my businesses and uh, doing all of that, then I probably was just going to wind up 20, 30, 40 years down the road being exactly like I was then. Um, and so I thought, you know, this is a good time in life to really make a change. I was debating between a few different directions, continuing doing what I was doing or, how, uh, may I ask how old were you? I was uh, 35. Got it. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, I'm 48 right now. Mm -hmm. And so, so I wound up just choosing this road. I wound up uh, basically going back to school. At that time, I had degrees in like technology and business management and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I wound up um, going back to school for psychology and neuroscience and transformative studies and trying to really learn the best of quantitative and qualitative both research methods because I'm a big believer in mixed methods to really get to the bottom of things. Uh, oftentimes, researchers are very dogmatic about one or the other. Um, but I think you've really got to put them both together in order to get a whole picture. Mm. And, um, and I just started asking, you know, who are the people out there that have the greatest well-being? And we went through a bunch of different populations and I wound up with this one. Um, really, you know, they, now this people who are enlightened, non-dual, all that, they make really extraordinary claims. Yeah. And I thought, probably psychopathological claims you know i thought i would probably <laughs> look into them for a little while and yeah. discover you know they were delusional or you know whatever else um but that never really turned out to be the case right and so instead i wound up really discovering for myself anyway many other people have discovered it for themselves 
but I really wound up sort of discovering that there was this whole other level of well-being out there that was really what I was looking for. Mm. And, you know, for the I think for the average person, and this was certainly true of me, when I say this in interviews and in talks and stuff, you know, everybody nods. Um, so I'm pretty sure it's true for them. But there's there's kind of this sense of fundamental discontentment that lies at the very base of human psychology. And that makes sense. You know, that's the case for the animal kingdom in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, if you're a bird and you land, uh, if you're, for instance, if you're eating outside, you know, and you throw a crumb to a bird and the bird lands and eats the crumb, it doesn't just sit there with its head down and keep chewing on the crumb and then just sort of keep staring at the ground or whatever. It's immediately looking around for what's going to swoop down and kill it. Right. right. I mean, it's got that fundamental sense that it better be on its toes. Something isn't quite right, probably, you know, at every instance. And I think all animals have that and we're just animals, really. And so for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years that served us and the species and whatnot that came before us very, very well in terms of survival. But it seems quite out of phase with modern life. And now it seems like those same sort of circuits in the brain that are responsible for that, they're often kind of hijacked by things that don't make sense for them to be hijacked by, you know? So if your boss tells you that you're fired or your spouse leaves you or whatever, it feels like a tiger ripping your arm off. It feels like it's a threat to your life. Right. You know, those circuits kind of kick in, but that's ridiculous. I mean, there's billions of people in the world. There's plenty of other potential spouses. There's an endless amount of opportunity in the world in terms of jobs and careers and whatever else. And so, you know, that's just a ludicrous sort of hijacking by these ancient neurocircuits mapped over into modern day reality that causes a lot of needless suffering. So one of the things that happens in this population is that there's a a very deep and fundamental change in that. And they go from having that sense of fundamental discontentment. Just one 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 quick yeah. question. When you say this population, can you clarify for everyone who you're talking about? Hey there. So are you interested in starting a meditation practice? Do you already have a meditation practice, but you feel like it's flagging? Let me introduce you to the Meditation for Life mini course, your guide to discovering the positivity, balance, and the ocean of calm that's already inside you. As you know, on this podcast, we interview people who have, in many respects, discovered that ocean of calm for themselves. And through our Meditation for Life mini course, we're really trying to provide you with the tools that are going to give you the ability to tap into that same positivity, and balance, and calm inside of yourself. Really, it's a way to discover a sustainable source of daily happiness. It's self-paced, and it's going to take you on a journey and give you some really essential tools. So we're talking a simple course here. It's like five in-depth lessons, five guided meditations, couple beautiful infographics, a meditation challenge. But basically, if you can imagine what it would feel like to walk into work, for example, feeling light and free and ready for anything, 
If you can imagine being ready to manage family disputes with calm presence, or to stop beating yourself up and start caring more for the most important person in your life, you. So let's be clear up front. It doesn't take a lot of time, but if you invest a little every day, meditation can change your life. It's like learning any new skill. It gets a little easier each time. When you meditate every morning for 10 to 15 minutes, you'll notice things starting to change because every day you're doing the inner work, the hardest work first. You'll start your day generating focus, clearing your mind, and establishing a confident and grounded center. So remember, I love this quote, the great filmmaker David Lynch says, the thing about meditation is you become more and more you. So what are you waiting for? Join us. Check out the Meditation for Life mini course over at aboutmeditation.com. One quick question. When you say this population, can you clarify for everyone who you're talking about? Yeah, it's really the people who are experiencing fundamental well-being, persistent non-symbolic experience. So, you know, any they're the only ones I really talk about. Yes. Um, and so it's all the folks that are, you know, in the, in the more popular terms that people might have heard of, it's, you know, enlightenment, non-duality, persistent mystical experience, unit of consciousness, God consciousness, shamanic ecstasy. I mean, there's just so many different terms. There's hundreds of different terms. Yes. Yes. Um, Thank you. All that's, around that's the world. Great. Um, and so it really changes for them is that they have a, that sense of discontentment transitions into a sense that things are fundamentally okay and not in an unhealthy way. I mean, if you point a gun at them, they don't just, you know, fawn over the gun and wait to get shot. Um, they're obviously able to react and protect themselves and all of that. But really, no matter what happens, if they get fired or their career is ruined or their spouse leaves them or whatever else, it's not that they, depending upon where they're at and the type of it that they're in, they might have tremendous equanimity or they might have a mix of negative and positive emotions just like everyone else. But they're able to, there's, they're able to look down beyond that to sort of this deeper foundation where despite the fact that this catastrophe seems to be happening in their life, somehow, strangely, everything still seems okay. And that is a profound difference in terms of your experience of moment-to-moment reality. And I think it's one of those things that everybody, it's the thing that really everybody is looking for. It's sort of a, it's sort of a cure for the fundamental problem of the human condition. Yeah. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. So you made this shift into kind of finding these populations of people and you sort of recognize this fundamental distinction that, that, okay, there's one wellness on one level, but then there's this population of people who are in a completely different category. Yeah. So and and you just really described that beautifully in terms of that core sense that something's wrong versus no, n- nothing's wrong. And maybe in fact, more than that, everything's right. And <laughs> I, okay, so then, and then what? What, what, when you, when you shifted your focus, how, take, take us a little bit into that. What, what does that mean when you say you shifted your focus into these people? Is this, 
when your study this this sort of yeah lung? yeah that's really when the study started which was and, around 2006 yeah so tell us about the study and 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 yeah kind of what happened and what gave you the so obviously did you start to have like you must have then started to have some of these experiences and if so what were they were there a few in particular that catalyzed a, a fundamental shift for you um what happened i actually spent the first several years trying not to shift into this uh, and trying to just maintain my objectivity from a scientific standpoint mm -hmm. And the reason that I did that was that I could tell that the people that I was meeting as research participants had become very biased by their experiences. And that there was probably no good objective way to research this, at least at that time, um, from within that state of consciousness. Mm. Uh, so I actually worked very, very hard not to fall into as ironically. Um, yeah, <laughs> because I've never heard you know, of that I sort before. of set out initially to fall into it, right, or to find people who had the well-being that I could then get or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it just seemed more important to actually do a proper study of them. So mm. one of the things that um, one of the things that we did was we really sort of listened to some of the senior members of the academy in this area yeah. uh, about how to do a proper study of them mm. because I did not want to get to the end where we had our findings and have people within the scientific community not accept our findings. Uh, and so we followed a very sort of systematic path that was laid out for us um, by the people who are sort of the political leaders, if you will, within the areas of the academy that, that mattered. And that involved beginning with gold standard uh, pencil and paper type tests. We administered them mostly online, sometimes in person. Um, and these were things that were a very broad range of stuff. So it was well-being tests, developmental tests, meaning-related tests, um, mysticism, of course, related tests, psychopathology related tests, you name it. We really just tried to get people to take as many of these as we possibly could. And what we were looking for was some difference between them and the rest of the population. And what was really surprising is that we didn't really find it. Um, I mean, they were happy and not depressed and, you know, not anxious and not stressed and all that. Uh, but, of course, if you just talk to them, they'll tell you that, right? It's, it's not a very right. significant finding right. if you then also come up with that on a pencil and paper test. And so I was a little disappointed after that um, because I thought there would be, you know, something that would really strongly differentiate them across these tests. In hindsight, I now realize that those tests are really designed to test people who are in a normal sense of self, not the type of state that these individuals are in. Mm. And so it's, it's kind of not surprising that those tests didn't show more, mm -hmm. uh, but we couldn't really have known that, you know, at the time. And so then, you know, I went back and I said, okay, well, we've done that. Now what? And uh, they said, well, you really have no choice but to go talk to these people. You know, you've got to start trying to collect qualitative data and try to figure them out from that direction. And so we did that. So I went out and I started interviewing people. And I would do about one person a day. Jeffrey, sorry, one quick question. Who, who was this, who, under whose auspices were you conducting the study and, and, and how was it funded? It depended. Um, and so on both of those counts. Yes. Um, so um, in 2006, it would have been me as a PhD student. Yes. 
um, at CIS. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere around 2008, I started going to Harvard to pick up psychology and neuroscience. So they would have blur- blurred in. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you eventually graduate and wind up at different universities. I was at Hong Kong Polytechnic for a while. I was at Sophia University for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently, um, I'm a lecturer at Stanford. Um, and so... Got it. Uh, and so, you know, it's just through the years that those things kind of change. Yes. Um, and then funding, um, I was able to fund a lot of it myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was very, very fortunate. And that's actually what made the study possible. Because the thing that had really, I think, prevented this type of major study from happening in the past was just a huge lack of funding. Yeah. Um, whereas I was able to, you know, just keep writing checks mm. to keep the thing going. But there were times when you can't write checks. Like there are, for instance, uh, some major institutions, and they won't really just sort of take anybody's money, you know. Uh, like if you're trying to get brain scanning done at Harvard or Yale or places like that, um, they, you know, you can't really just write them a check. Right. Um, you can write them a check if you're a really famous person that they want to be associated with in some way. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but they have like, you know, some restrictions and stuff on where they take money from and, and it's like all the prestige thing largely, Yeah, frankly. Um, makes sense. But, uh, so, you know, some things were, so then I would have to go out and I would have to find other, you know, the right level of prestigious this or that in order to, you know, get some of that type of stuff done or help people get that type of stuff done or whatever. Uh, and so it's been that kind of mix of stuff really. Okay. Got it. All right. So that, that, that's helpful. I just. I felt like that was necessary context as you were describing the study. And, um, okay. So then you were getting to this point where then you, you, the, the authorities as it were from the Academy were saying, okay, you, you need to go interview these people in person. Yeah. Yeah. And so we started, I started doing that. I started interviewing basically one person a day and I did that for quite some time. Um, and so I would literally, when I was in America, I would just get in my car and I would drive from person to person to person to person. And I would sort of drive all the way across the country and back. Um, and wow. I would sit with people for between six and 12 hours and do these very in-depth interviews, really, really trying to ensure that I understood what it was that they were trying to convey to the greatest extent possible. You know, one thing about all of this is that people often talk about the despair of prose involving it. You know, the, the difficulty of language, the inability to actually describe these types of internal experiences because other, you know, the person you're talking to hasn't had them. Right. Mm -hmm. So you don't have this sort of common shared experience. Yeah. Um, And I felt that if you structured the interviews in such a way, we were we were structuring the interviews to try to sort people for neuroscience, for things like fMRI and EEG experiments and things like that. And so what we did is we basically would ask them questions along cognitive science lines. So that was um, things like, I would ask about cognition, emotion, perception, memory, sense of self, stuff like that. And by doing that, it actually had sort of a miraculous um, effect and that... I think was more than anything else responsible for the success of that phase of the study, even though it wound up sort of being accidental. Um, And it's that, you know, if you sat down with me and you wanted to talk about spaciousness or God or whatever else, you really couldn't get away with it. You know, you had to answer questions in relation to these major cognitive science topics. 
And so as a consequence of that, it gave us a picture of the cognitive architecture of this across a wide number of different systems and populations. Uh, and that wound up being the thing that was far more valuable than anything else. And so uh, up to that point anyway. And so mm -hmm. we really wound up with the first sort of cross-cultural, cross-tradition map, cognitive science-based map um, from a quantitative phenomenological perspective of fundamental well-being and the different types of it. Um, and, you know, which traditions or which religions had which types of it, um, all sorts of stuff. It was, it was really quite fascinating. Mm. So, for instance, Christianity, yeah. we, have, call it, um, we call them locations, not levels or types or anything like that. Uh, we call them locations along a continuum of related experiences. And so if you imagine a continuum as like a number line, you can have sort of like these locations along the number line. And so location three, for instance, is a place that is the classic end of the Christian mystical path. It's uh, also the classic end of uh, the Sufi path, um, the Abrahamic mystical tradition uh, for Islam, um, and, and some Buddhism stuff and some Hinduism stuff as well. But, the, you know, if you're from a Christian or a Sufi standpoint, they have a little bit of location two that they consider valid and location three that they definitely consider valid. But like location one, not really a valid thing in their system. Location four, not really a valid thing in their system. Other locations, five, six, whatever, not really a valid thing in their system. And we wound up discovering that across these different traditions. You know, one of the reasons that um, there have been these debates about you know, whether or not, you know, Joe Blow is in the right spot in terms of fundamental well-being um, or what the right spot even is. It's because there turned out to be these different categories of it. Um, and so uh, that was that was really a major finding. Mm. So you qualified these as uh, kind of locations that correspond to well-being and and. Is it, you, you, you made a, a strong distinction there. You said we don't refer to them as types or levels or stages. Like, it's, are, would you say they correlate to states of consciousness or is it something broader? Yeah, than that? I think they, they correlate to a, to a composite perceptual experience of how the world is showing up for you mm -hmm. that are very different than the way the world shows up for ordinary people. You know, if you just think about that one core piece of that shift between feeling like, you know, something's not quite right to feeling like everything's fine. Yeah. That's a massive shift. Huge. That that produces in your perception of the world. That's a great example. Okay. Were there individuals or were there, because it sounds like you were saying the big takeaway was this sort of unexpected cross-cultural, cross-traditional yeah, sort of, you know, where you could see these results. And yeah, were, were there any, were there any individuals in that process that stood out for you? Um, and obviously, scientifically, the results were significant in what you just described. Personally, was there in that stage of your research, anyone who stood out to you as like, wow, you know, this is, I'm having a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm having a hard time not going where he's going or she's going or, <laughs> you know, what, 
Yeah, can you? Yeah, give especially it? in the early days. Yeah, um, I would say it wasn't even like a special person or two. Yeah, um, but I would often sit down with people, and within 15 minutes or so, my mind would be silent, mm. which is not a good thing if you're there to ask questions. Yeah, and so I had to learn how to block it. Um, I had to learn how to block effects like that. Um, you know, I remember one time I was having um, dinner with someone. And it was a, it was actually a long time research subject, um, who had who had had you know crazy effects on me in the past, and who I'd gotten pretty good at blocking. Uh, but this one particular day, um, he had a really really strong effect on me, and I really almost felt like I was going to pass out. And so um, I excused myself and I went to the bathroom and I just stood with my back to the wall, trying not to pass out. And then I went back to the table, um, and you know as far as he knew, I'd gone to the bathroom, right? I yeah. Didn't, say what I was, what was happening with me. And I got back to the table and he just looked at me and he said, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I was like, I'll tote it down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I have, I've experienced all sorts of weird stuff um, over the course of this. One thing about, you know, a lot of the weird stuff though, is I, I always tell people it's important to keep in mind that I am not a magician, right? And so when I see strange things, I'm a pretty easy guy to fake stuff out with, right? Like I, you know, you can fool me with your average card trick or simple sleight of hand or, uh, or whatever else. And so, um, I don't really feel qualified to evaluate, um, you know, some of the stranger things that I've seen on this journey. Um, uh, but I, certainly I can tell when I'm about to pass out at dinner, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. All right, and then so what did you do with those findings and what was the next stage? So um, the day eventually came where we really wanted to, uh, those findings incidentally are mostly written up in a new book uh, that's just coming out called The Finders. Nice. Um, and that book is really for finders actually because there's really not much out there for them. A lot of people have put a lot of time into writing about how to get to fundamental well-being although not that successfully, but there's very little work out there on what to do once you're there or things that sort of help people contextualize it once they're there. Hmm. And so I wanted to put a book out that would really do that. Obviously, I know that tons of seekers and meditators and whatever else, they're going to pour through that book. Uh, and I added a couple of chapters at the beginning to contextualize things a little bit for them. Um, but Mostly that book is for people who are already experiencing this and to really sort of it contextualizes all of that research. I just, you know, they had been so generous with their time. We had to really make a decision whether we were going to focus our initial publication efforts around, you know, an academic book put out by like Columbia Press or somebody or which we were trying to, which people were trying to talk us into. Um, or whether we were going to put out a more popular book or whether we were going to put out a book on um, that was really more beneficial to the research population. And I thought long and hard about it. I tried to write a book that appealed to all three, but of course that didn't work. Hmm. And so eventually I had to make a choice and uh, I wound up choosing this research population because really, you know, they have been so kind and generous with their time for over a decade now. And um, I just really felt like the most important thing that we could do was really produce something for them, you know, give, give them a return on their time and their investment mm -hmm. and sort of opening their homes and their hearts to us. 
Um, and it's it's kind of funny because I know that as a result of that, I'm sure this book, which is about to come out as we make this podcast, will probably be out by the time the podcast is out. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. It's, you know, I'm sure it's going to get pounded um, by by people who aren't finders who read it. Um, and so I'm a little, you know, it's it's a bit of a trade-off mm. there that I'm making and 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 having gone down that path. But I just, we really felt like we needed to serve them. So anyway, that data from that first uh, part of the research is available there. It's also, there's all kinds of talks and academic presentations and stuff like that on uh, nonsymbolic.org, our center, our website for our center, the Center for the Study of Nonsymbolic Consciousness. Um, so what we did next was really ask ourselves, how can we get before and after data? Because up to this point, we'd only gotten data from people who had already transitioned to fundamental well-being. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's that was great. And what came from that was phenomenal. Um, but we couldn't help but wonder, you know, what would this look like if we could capture data before, during, and after the transition process. And so we'd been, you know, all around the world, across traditions, all of it. And we had not really encountered, I'd been looking hard, but we had not really encountered a method that you could really sort of justify um, a before and after, what we would call an A-B study, on um, expensive neuroscience equipment, right? And so like if you're going to do an fMRI study, for instance, you know, it can be three to $5,000 per subject all in, including the analysis, paying somebody to do the analysis and all that. Wow. And that's a lot of money. That's a it's lot a of money. money to spend on someone who doesn't transition, right? And, and yeah, especially in, if you need to get the right sample size of people. I mean, you're, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And so you can, you know, you, I'm sure, probably just as a function of your interest in meditation, been on a lot of meditation retreats, taken a lot of courses, read a lot of books, watched a lot of videos. And you know that the success rate in those, it's not like you go to a retreat and like 90% of people transition to yeah. fundamental well-being in the yeah. retreat, right? I mean, yeah. you're lucky if like one person transitions yeah. because usually it doesn't even happen. And so, you know, we looked all around the world for a method that we could use that really sort of justified the investment that it would take. And we didn't find one. Um, and so we wound up asking ourselves, you know, what can we create? Um, now, the, now, the regions of interest in the brain, by that point, there was fMRI work and EEG work on this. And so we had some rough idea of the brain networks involved and the regions of interest in the brain and stuff. And they were all very, very deep in the brain. And that was very bad news for technological interventions. Because at the time, the state of brain stimulation and neurofeedback science was such that at, uh, from an economical standpoint, um, it was very difficult to reach those deep brain regions in sort of a non-invasive way and whatnot. Um, and so a technological solution didn't seem like that was going to work out. I did spend some time on that um, during uh, my time in Hong Kong when I was a visiting professor over there at Hong Kong Polytechnic University um, when I was in a slightly less litigious environment and could experiment more with brainstem and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but just nothing seemed possible at that time. Um, and so we wound up looking back at our data, and one of the questions that we had asked people was, what worked for you? And I had never really paid much attention to the answer to that question because I didn't think that people would be able to accurately report out what had actually transitioned them. 
uh, we can, that's a long, long story for why I believed that at the time. Mm. Uh, but it turned out that when we went back and analyzed the data from that question, there was a relatively small number of methods that people seemed to have used. Mm. And many people had used one or more of those methods, generally speaking, more than one of those methods. It's probably a better way to say that. And yet, there wasn't one method that seemed to predominantly work for people. And so it seemed like what we were looking at in the responses to that question was to some degree a searching out process that people, because when you asked them, on another question we asked, you know, what have you tried before? And people had tried just tons of stuff lots of times, you know. I mean, some people, they fell into something like TM and then they did that for the next 50 years, right? Right. Um, but other people, they, they had really been on like a massive nonstop search. Um, and so what seemed to be suggestive in the data for us at that point was that some methods seemed more reliable at transitioning people than others, though not in any sort of majority kind of way. And, um, that it seemed like it wasn't enough for someone to have a list of these that they then needed to sort of find, <laughs> excuse me, the one or ones that matched up with them. And so there was sort of a, a matching up process that needed to occur. So we started to monkey around with this, and we started to sort of create lists of these methods that had risen to the top, and then put them in different orders, have people just experiment with one, have them experiment with multiple ones, um, make some changes to the methods, and try to optimize them based on um, things that we were seeing in the data. And we wound up with kind of a, a customized set of, of these methods that people could progress through in a certain order mixed in with positive psychology methods and some other cognitive science-based methods and stuff like that uh, to help them sort of manage mood and emotion because some of these methods are notorious for spinning people out into like dark, night, dark nights of the soul and stuff for decades. Right? Mm. Obviously, there are ethical problems with conducting research where you're making people depressed for decades. Right. Uh, and so we had to mitigate some of those issues. Um, it took us about a year of experimenting around with this stuff to nail down a protocol. Uh, and then we were experimenting with the protocol on onesie twosie people, and it seemed to be working. And so we decided to do a pilot test and um, of just random people out there in the public. And we'd written this book called, this fiction book called The Fourth Awakening. A friend of mine, Rod Pennington, who's a great fiction author. I am definitely not a fiction author. Mm -hmm. uh, he came up with this idea to help us find people that were just in PNSE but sort of out there in the mainstream, uh, not teachers or anything like that, to increase our participant population in that direction. Um, and he thought, you know, why don't you just write a book about it? Why don't we just write a fiction book about it? And, um, and so we collaborated on this fiction book, and it became a bestseller, and so it had a pretty good-sized mailing list. And so I just sent out to the mailing list saying, hey, we're thinking of doing a small you know, experiment, a small pilot experiment around this. This is kind of what we've been up to. Um, if you're interested in being a participant, uh, let me know. And so we picked three men and three women. Um, we picked two people that were very depressed, two people that were average, and two people that were super happy. Um, different age ranges to the extent we could. We, one person was in South Africa, one person was in Wales, the rest were in America. Um, and so we tried to get as much diversity sort of as you could get in six people off of an endeavor like that. Yeah. Um, and we said, you know, this is probably going to last about 12 weeks at the time that protocol was a 12 week protocol. Now it's a 17 week protocol. Um, cause it's been refined more. Um, 
And these six people basically went through it. The person in South Africa ultimately dropped out. They had an uphill climb with English not being their first language. Mm. And it turned out that we were when I was doing these live over Google Hangouts, I wound up uh, talking to the guy who runs Google Hangouts because, you know, we're in Silicon Valley here. And so I just went to Google and met with him. Yeah. And uh, he was telling me at the time, I don't know if this is still true or not, but he was telling me at the time, five years ago or so, that Google Hangouts ran on top, runs on top of the YouTube infrastructure and that there's not a lot of, like, connections between the different YouTube data centers. And so it's, like, really good to use if you're in the same region as the people you want to talk to, but not so good if you're not, right? And so this poor guy in South Africa was always having these really terrible connections uh. You know, he just, he, he, that and the English as a second, he just had a, a horrible uphill climb. And eventually in the second part, he just dropped out. Uh, so five people finished it. And, um, and all five of them basically transitioned to fundamental well being, um, which I thought was absolutely incredible. Not what you expected. You would have asked me if I thought that that was possible before that experiment. I would have said no. Yeah. Um, and so then we ran another experiment where we um, basically added a zero to the number of participants. We did 60 people in a second run of the experiment, um, and we had a, about a 73% success rate. And at this point, um, we've analyzed the data through, I want to say, about the first 11 or so of them. Um, we've probably done about 20 of them, but it's really intensive to analyze all the data. Um, and so, and, and by the time we hit 11 of them and we had hundreds of people and it was, you know, we weren't going to get any more statistical significance. Um, and so we were like, okay, well that's enough. Let's just call that, you know, the experiment. And so it wound up being, um, through, uh, the 11th experiment about uh, a 70% success rate, mm. which is kind of incredible. Yes. You know, I mean, imagine if you could go to a retreat and have a 70% success rate. That'd be a pretty good time investment. It'd be huge. So what that enabled us to do was really collect that pre and post data for the first time ever. Uh, and we did all kinds of things. We had people put on EEG headsets at home, and we're still analyzing. We have some of the best people in the world analyzing the, um, the EEG data. Um, our main partner on that is a guy named Arno Delorme, who you can look up, um, and who's, you know, he basically invented the software that is used to analyze EEG by most academic labs. And I mean, really, you know, we've been blessed in our project to really have many of the best collaborators on the planet. There are so many amazing and accomplished people who are interested in this area, mm. who are willing to put a little bit of time into analysis or research design or research execution or whatever. It's been, it's been a real blessing. Beautiful. So anyway, that's uh, that was the that was the next phase, and that phase really just kind of ended at the end of uh, 2018, um, where we had enough data from all of those experiments that we just didn't really need anymore, and we we thought briefly, uh, you know, what should we do? Should we just never run another one of these, or should we keep it available? And so we decided to transition the course itself uh, to just a class that people can take. And so we just left it running out there basically in the same way. We cut back the number of measures, but we do still collect data because, you know, why not? Someday some PhD student might come along and want it. Um, so this is so, the finder's course. Is... And that's the finder's course, yeah. That's what it is. That's where it comes from, and that's its background. And It's really been quite an amazing thing. And then right now what we're working on is the next phase, um, and we've been working on it for a little while in parallel to the finder's course, um, after we after we transitioned a couple hundred people, 
um, we began to have an issue where we were sort of, you know, responsible for them. Right, um, right. After you transition to fundamental well-being, the way you live your life is very different. And there really weren't any books that help people to appreciate that or um, any materials. That everybody would sort of latch on to this one book by Adi Shanti, which has had a huge impact on people, called The End of Your World. Uh, so like every time, it seemed like every time I met a PNSE person somewhere, they'd all found that book. <laughs> You know, and that book had been like really important to them yeah. to contextualize their transition. Uh, but that was pretty much it. You know, there wasn't anything else. And so um, so we created another experiment that we call the Explorer's Course. Um, and it's designed basically to help people optimally integrate uh, on the other side of the transition to fundamental well-being, um, this new way of living into their life. You know, should I mean, it's just basic things like, you know, should you go tell your spouse right away? And if so, how? Um, because your spouse is probably going to look at you like you're crazy. Um, mm. Or, you know, there's just there's all these complications. And there's this core thing that happens that's really quite interesting where there's this sense of peace. No matter which location you're in, there's a newfound sense of peace. And. That peace becomes your primary motivation, sort of preserving that peace or looking after that peace or whatever, really becomes your primary motivation, whether it's conscious, unconscious, whether you feel like you have a sense of agency and doership or whether you don't feel like that, whatever your particular flavor of fundamental well-being unfolds like, it's largely all around sort of the management and the respect for this sense of peace. And so the dilemma there is that you wind up having um, a situation where even though you've transitioned to this other way of being, 99.5% of the world is still stuck in the other version of being, you know, this kind of neurotic, um, you know, discontented um, problem of the human condition. If you yeah, know. yeah. Um, and so you're trying in every moment really to try to you're really making a decision if you're in pnse if you're in fundamental well-being in in every moment whether it's a conscious decision or not but it helps to recognize this hmm. and many people just have this unfolding sort of in the background um and so it helps to sort of bring it into the foreground of their yeah. awareness yeah um where you're really sort of asking yourself you know how much peace am i willing to trade off for x y or z Right? How much peace am I willing to trade off to stay married to this person or to stay in this job or to, you know, if I go to have lunch with my friends and my friends want to spend all of their time telling stories and getting their stories validated about their life and I no longer care at all about stories or the stories of my life and don't need your validation in any way um, and don't care at all about that, do I, is that really how I want to spend my next lunch is, you know, with even a 30-year friend? Um, and this sort of pattern of normal human communication, you know, there's a trade-off of peace sort right. of that goes along with that. Right. Um, and then there's deconditioning cycles. There's a very important two-year cycle right after you transition that it's really helpful to know what that is and how that unfolds so that you can optimize it. Um, there's seven-year cycles. And there, there's all sorts of sort of basic knowledge like this that you can't really know unless you've gone across these sort of massive population numbers like we have. Um, and so anyway, we put together an experiment to, to really, um, help optimize that. And that's a big piece of what we're working on right now. There's uh, there's a little mini course 
you can't really get at this moment that we're making this um, this audio recording. You can't really get to the main Explorers course experiment. Uh, but there is a mini course that we put up at explorerscourse.com that's got a couple of hours of content that's like just the most important stuff people should know. So we're working on that. And the other thing that we're working on is um, direct brain stimulation for uh, fundamental well-being. Um, earlier this year, um, there was um, – or actually, really, last year, about last year, about this time, actually, um, I was rendezvousing and catching up with um, a friend of mine um, named Jay Sanguinetti, who works on ultrasound, transcranial ultrasound, mm. and some other stuff, um, other brainstem stuff, at a conference, at an academic conference. And um, it was just really clear that ultrasound had finally arrived in a way that was probably usable for experimentation with fundamental well-being. This is something that we've been tracking for years, mm -hmm. I would say five or six years at that point, across all of the different researchers and whatever else, really trying to sort of be as helpful as we could um, to them and move that science along or help that science move along to the degree that we could, not having, not having it be sort of a core part of what we were working on day to day, you know. Um, but we would try to find people funding or try to help them network with each other or try to provide feedback on things that may be related to our expertise and, and stuff like that. Right. Uh, and it was just very clear that, that the technology had finally matured to the point where um, you could probably use it. And so we've started a new series of experiments um, that we've been doing uh, since about that time, really, um, that are really able to hit those deep brain regions for the first time mm. with this technology, with this uh, transcranial ultrasound technology. Now, it's still very expensive. Um, you know, this is, this is a project that's an over a million-dollar project uh, in terms of its annual budget and whatnot, right? And so this is not something that, you know, you can, that the average person could afford right. or uh, whatever. Um, and so, you know, we do, you know, you can come here and do it, but it's expensive, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's like rich people who can come and do it right now uh, if they want to participate in the experiment and, uh, sort of buy their way into it or whatever. Um, but it is producing the results that are in the direction that we, that we would expect. Hmm. And so we're able to really sort of directly reach into the brain and sort of tickle these regions that in the fMRI work and the EEG work were suggested as relevant to fundamental well-being and both push people along forward um, in their own sense of fundamental well-being, you know, sort of deepen them in fundamental well-being. The thing that really got my attention a year ago was that um, Jay was working um, with uh, Shenzhen Young, uh, who's a well-known meditation teacher, and um, so Shenzhen had uh, talked Jay into um, trying this transcranial ultrasound stuff on him, and um, he had had these really remarkable effects. You know, um, he basically said that that it produced changes in him that you know weren't produced by 50 years of meditation or whatever. Wow. So then some other meditation teachers did it. Um, uh, Jay's done some others. We've done some others. Um, and sure enough, we're finding like those types of effects. Um, I'm finding it in, this, in the same way with my own sense of fundamental well-being. Mm. Uh, the other researchers at the lab are in fundamental well-being. They're finding it as well. Um, and through, so there's one side of And it's through elect electrostimulation? 
No, it's through um, acoustical stimulation. Ultrasound is an acoustical wave. It's uh, an audio wave, basically. Wow, wow. So it's like a mechanical audio wave that goes through the skull and can precisely target very small regions of the brain. Wow. Um, That's amazing. It is. It's really quite incredible. And so we've also and seen... Can you say to me, can you just specify a little bit what exactly when, like, for example, when you're, when you're saying you've, that Shenzhen, Shenzhen had had these uh, results and that you and, and Jay and some of the other folks, can you just be a little bit more specific about, can you describe that, like... I think it's different for different people depending Uh upon where they're at, you know? The one thing that has been consistent um, has been that it seems to move people further along Mm -hmm. into fundamental well-being, you Mm. know? So if you think about that continuum and you think about different locations, one way to think about that might be moving, you know, into later locations than someone was at. Um, yeah, but you know, Shinzen and different teachers, they all have their own sort of models and ways of talking about their own experience. And, uh, I don't think I can necessarily do that justice <laughs> for them. Uh, but it's all out there. It's been, there's presentations that Jay's given. And, um, I think Shinzen's talked a little bit about it here and there. And, um, and so, and you know, you can go to, uh, the trans tech conference website and, um, Jay did a presentation for us there where he talks about a lot of this stuff. Um, mm. And Sanjay Manchandra, who's our main clinician here, um, did a talk there as well. I did a talk there. So you can see some of that uh, there for sure. Um, I can talk about it from my own standpoint. One one other thing that I've long hypothesized is that these locations, they're probably the default locations of nature. You know, so like location three is pretty much where you're going to wind up at the end of the Christian mystical path. Um, I think there's been some sort of symbiosis between humans and human sort of cognition and willpower and whatever else, uh, action, um, and just sort of how processes unfold in the brain um, and how sort of nature has wired us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the meditations that we do, you know, are a result of sort of humans sort of working with these brain and nervous system processes to try to sort of figure out hacks, if you will. Um, yeah. And that they seem, things seem to unravel in very consistent ways all around the world. Um, and so, you know, these different locations continuum, and it doesn't really matter if you're a Sufi or a Christian or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, the way you describe location three in cognitive science terms is going to be pretty much the same. Now, you might... You know, if I let you go outside of cognitive science terms, you might talk about the heart of Jesus versus Allah or something. Um, You know, you're going to add your own cultural spin on it. But at the heart, stripping away all of that, it's essentially the same stuff. So um, one thing that I've thought for years is that although although these locations are common experiences of people, it's probably possible to create customized versions of them. Hmm. Uh, and so this has really been the first time that we've been able to experiment with that because you can directly just stimulate one part of a brain network 
instead of having to sort of work your way into it organically or the whole network is involved in some way and, you know, whatever else. And we have actually been successful now at creating some customizations of persistent non-symbolic experience of fundamental well-being um, that never emerged anywhere in our research. Um, so sort of hybrids, if you will, of different locations, like elements of one thing and another thing sort of smeared together, if you will, hmm. into a different type of fundamental well-being experience. And so I think that's another thing that's going to be possible is, is going to be customized and optimum forms of fundamental well-being for people um, rather than sort of the one size fits all categories yeah. that, you know, we have right now yeah. to sort of the default of what's possible. Wow. Uh, and then, of course, transitioning people yeah. to fundamental well-being using this as well, right? Yes. So it's a very exciting time. I think these technologies are are really at the forefront of brain science and also at the forefront of human consciousness evolution. Yeah, for sure. All right. So I have just a little bit of time before I got to abandon ship here and go pick up my toddler. So... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. um, Let's let's kind of sort of move towards concluding here. And um, do you have any sort of? I mean, um, I I have big questions that are not corresponding with our time limitations here. Um, <laughs> do, you know, questions around kind of comparing meditation techniques, and you know you kind of in certain ways talked about that as you developed your kind of core methodology and in, in the, in the core practices. Um, but like efficacy of some practices ver or practices versus others. I, I have questions about like teachers and traditions. And then I have some f basic <laughs> questions around what is, you know, how has this sort of, how how have your findings through this whole process shaped your your basic perception of what consciousness is and higher consciousness in particular um and and i don't think there's time to really address those questions <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> yeah probably but, not <laughs> but i i just wanted to kind you know, of you've got a toddler waiting <laughs> yeah exactly I, I so i just wanted to we're not, I don't think we can address them, but I wanted to just put them out there because I, in, indirectly your work kind of rubs up against all of those questions. Sure. And, um, you know, the, you know, you've presented some very compelling information and, and particularly obviously being able to say that 70% of participants in the finders course have transitioned is, is a enormous that's a that's a that's a really significant uh, yeah and so everyone i i encourage you to take everything that jeffrey is saying seriously and and really consider it for yourself and if people want to find out more about this if they want to participate in the finders course how would they do that jeffrey and also can you say a little bit about what the course is for people. Sure. Um, yeah, informationally, 
Uh, a lot of our stuff is at nonsymbolic.org, the Center for the Study of Nonsymbolic Consciousness's website. Um, and then um, we have that that core content for finders at explorerscourse.com. Um, but Finder's Course itself and the book, uh, there's some bonuses that might still be available with the book. I don't know, but it's at thefindersbook.com. Um, but the Finder's Course itself is at finderscourse.com. And um, it is it is an intensive process, you know, as you would expect. Yeah. So it's 17 weeks long. It's delivered online anywhere you are in the world. The instruction is actually pretty short. It's it's generally less than an hour of instruction a week, um, because it's it's doing based. It's not theory based. Cool. You know, I think to some degree, one of the things that people make a big mistake with that are trying to transition to fundamental well being is they just keep learning and learning and learning and learning more about it, and their minds just sort of keep creating this idea of what it what it is. Um, and I think the stronger you sort of make that idea of what it is, the further you get away from being able to actually get there. It's a mm. little ironic. Mm. Um, and so we don't do any of that. We basically, you know, we basically say, okay, this week, here's what you're going to do. And then you go away and you practice. So it's a practice driven course. Um, and it starts off at an hour and a half a day, starts off with, uh, about 15 minutes in the, in right when you wake up 15 minutes before you go to bed of morning and evening, sort of positive psychology, well-being type exercises. And then an hour block of meditation every day that lasts throughout the entire course. Um, and that goes up to by week three, by week three, it's a, it's a good two and a half hours or so a day of stuff that you're doing. Hmm. Um, and so it's, 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 it's an intensive course. I mean, you know, you don't transition to fundamental well-being um, without taking this seriously. Yeah. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting about the time commitment, though, is that oftentimes people are like, oh, my God, I can never find two and a half hours or whatever. But the strangest thing is people don't complain about it when they're in the program. And so, like, everybody's sort of nervous about where they're going to find two and a half hours before the program. <laughs> but something happens yeah. right away when people start the program mm. where it's like no big deal in actuality. And I think that's, I would, I would love to find out more about why that is because almost no one ever drops out because of time. Yeah. Um, and so it's so funny because everybody who takes it is like, boy, where am I going to get that couple hours a day or whatever? And then like, you never hear about it again. It's so interesting. That's cool. Uh, so even though it's intensive, um, it, it doesn't, it seems to be, it seems to fit well into mm -hmm. people's lives, mm -hmm. even though they're often surprised by it, which is interesting. Uh, so anyway, that's it. It's practice driven, literally like, um, and it's, and it is, it is based on that idea of, you know, presenting people with the stuff that works and having them systematically week after week after week, work through it until they find the thing that works for them. Uh, and so we have people that transition to fundamental well-being in the very first week. And we have people that transition to fundamental well-being in the 17th week. Um, it's just a matter of when the method is presented that actually works for you. We actually don't believe that it should take more than a week for you to transition to fundamental well-being if you have a method that is matched properly to you. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a that's another one of those huge statements that people are like, "Are you kidding me? You've got to sit on a cushion for forty years or whatever." But um, yeah, but we think that there's primarily a psychological matching thing. And so, mm. like for instance, in the TM community, when you think about um, your friend who took the course, who spent all of those years in TM, you know, people in the TM community, I think, or any community, we're, I'm just using that as an example. I'm not picking on them for any specific reason. Um, I think they really wonder why is it that there are some people who like wake up in the initiation ceremony. <laughs> Right? Yeah. And then why are there other people who die having never transitioned? Yeah. And everything in between, <laughs> you know, like yeah. after one week, after two weeks, after three weeks, after four weeks, after a year, after three decades, after whatever, right? Um, and I think it relates to when someone comes into, if they ever come into, psychological alignment with that particular method. Mm. Now, some people are just in, a, just like in the first week of the course, in the, and it's a breath exercise in the first yeah. week. It's like as generic as it gets. It's yeah. basically watching your breath and doing some noting of when the breath goes and stuff. It's a slightly modified breath exercise, but it's a simple breath exercise in the first week of the course, right? Mm. It's, it's something that probably anybody who has ever meditated has already done. And yet, why is it that out of an out of 100 people, there's probably three or four people that are going to transition in the first week? From the seemingly simple exer and, and you know relatively common exercise, it's yeah. because they're matched to it in yeah. that moment. Yeah. So anyway, that's the gist. That's cool. All right, so everyone, we're gonna like I said, we will put up links to all of this in the show notes to everything that Jeffrey's talked about, and I encourage you to go check it out. If this has been compelling to you and exciting in any way, please go check it out. And um, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for taking the time to to oh, share you. your it was story. A pleasure, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure and um, wonderful. I hope maybe uh, maybe we can check in in another year or two and and learn more about how the uh, the new experiments are going. Absolutely, and get some of your other questions answered. Yeah, the big ones, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yes. If, if you can, if you can answer those, that would be great. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Jeffrey Martin. If you enjoyed today's show, I encourage you to please leave us a rating and a review. I can't tell you what a difference that makes for us. It helps other meditators find our show. And I want to encourage you to check out our courses. You can go over to aboutmeditation.com and check out the course section. Check out our Meditation for Life mini course or our How to Meditate core training program. And finally, I want to end with a quote. And this one is from the Rigpa Glimpse of the Day. And it goes like this. Just as a writer learns the spontaneous freedom of expression only after years of often grueling study, and just as the simple grace of a dancer is achieved only with enormous patient effort, so when you begin to understand where meditation will lead you, you will approach it as the greatest endeavor of your life one that demands of you the deepest perseverance, enthusiasm, intelligence, and discipline. <laughs>